Here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to preach on can a sovereign God change his mind? And then after that, I'm going to answer any questions on that or on fasting. Why on fasting? Well, because we're having three days of prayer and fasting. And so at some point, if you do decide to fast, you'll get hungry. (laughs) During that time, at some point, this thought will cross your mind. Why on earth am I doing this? It would be much easier and nicer and warmer to eat. At that point, you need to know why you're doing it. So it, it may be that you're clear, in which case fine. I don't want to do a whole session on fasting, but I'm happy to answer questions on fasting at the end. But I wanted to look at this whole subject of can a sovereign God change his mind? Not just to be controversial or just to float funny ideas around, but because it makes a big difference on your understanding of who God is and your understanding of um, the effectiveness of prayer. Um, so that's why we're doing it. It, it. It's not just so that you can go out thinking, oh, that's, that's an interesting thought. It's so that you can apply biblical doctrine about who God is and how God works and then you can apply that to your own prayer life and um, see how these things work. I want to read you three short stories. first one is Exodus 32, verse 7. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Um, I'm not going to give you the context of all the stories because it would take too long, but you should be able to pick up the gist through them and they will help us as we look at this subject today. Exodus 32, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down, they were up, they were up a mountain, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf. They've worshipped it, sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and they're a stiff-necked people. Now, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did God bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The key word there being relented. Now 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings, so it goes Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, then you get the Samuels, then you get, oh, then you get Ruth, then the Samuels, and then the Kings. 1 Kings 21. I'll read you a different story. Verse 17. Say I when you're there. You're Scottish, you lot. Okay. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to me, Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. He's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's going to take possession. Say to Ahab, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? You shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, so Ahab is the king, Elijah is the prophet. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah answered, I've found you, because you've sold yourself to do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, slave or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah, for the anger which you've provoked me, and because you've made Israel sin. And then down to um, 
Verse 25. There was no one who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. When Ahab heard those words, so he's heard these words of judgment that God's going to destroy him, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah again, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now go to Isaiah, chapter 38. Isaiah is after the Psalms, which is in the middle of the Bible. You get Psalms and Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, then Isaiah, chapter 38. These are just three narratives that I wanted to expose you to before we look at the actual doctrines um, Isaiah 38, verse 1 to 6. Say, I when you're there. In those days, <laughs> Hezekiah, he's the king, became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah the prophet again. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Okay? Three stories there, which I think will help us as we look at the subject of does God change his mind. Um, That's the God of the Bible, the sovereign God. The Bible reveals God as sovereign. Um, So he's not a God of many, He's the God. He's unique as creator. He's not among a plethora of gods that are battling it out for supremacy. All other so-called gods are, um, are, are not real, not gods in that sense. Other spiritual powers were created by him. He alone is unique as the sovereign creator. Only he is the uncreated one. That's how the Bible reveals God time and time again um, through the, the prophets specifically. Isaiah is very strong on that. If you read Isaiah chapter 40, chapter 45, 46, it's very, very strong on that. This is the God of the Bible. So the, the Bible teaches that he's unchanging and that he's sovereign. What does it mean that he's unchanging? It means this, that his nature is um, fundamentally um, perfect, always has been and always will be. That morally he's perfect that his nature is eternal, so what he is, he was, what he is, he will be. Um, If he was to improve, then that would mean that he's currently imperfect. If he was to get worse, then we'd be in trouble, and he would be going against his word, because he says in Malachi 3 verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So he's completely unchanging. That is why we come and we are confident, when we worship and praise, that we're allowed into his presence, because he's said... If you're in Christ, I receive you, I accept you. I'm no longer angry with you because of your sin. My anger's been satisfied through my son's death on the cross, and as you hide in him, I'm completely justified you, I call you my children, you're welcome. Now God said that then, but because he's unchanging, we're confident he still means it now. So even the very things that we do and the very ways that we live are really lived out theology. And when people are not confident around God, the reason why it doesn't glorify him is because actually what you're saying is, is, well, he said that, but does he still mean it? You're questioning his faithfulness. He's completely faithful, completely unchanging. What about sovereignty? What does it mean that God is sovereign? Well, different Christians see this slightly differently. There's a spectrum, I want to be honest with you, there's a spectrum in how they see it. And I want to look at one end of the spectrum, the other, and then what I believe is biblical. 
So, at one extreme, Christians would say, God, because he knows the end from the beginning, is actually not ultimately moved in any real way by the plight of man on the earth, because he knows how it's all going to end. It's a bit like when you watch a film, and you know how it ends, so when it's going bad for the good, you think, well, no drama, we know he wins in the end. Yeah, you don't get all worked up about it. So in that sense, he knows the end from the beginning. He's not really moved by our, by our plight. He's not affected, really, or moved or prevailed upon by prayer, because it's all fixed anyway. It's all fixed from beginning to end. Nothing really is up for grabs. So they would tend to say that at the end of the day, what's the big deal about prayer? It changes you. Okay? Which I think there's truth in it. Yeah? But they would say, ultimately, prayer is about the fact you come into God's presence with an agenda, and then you see his glory, and you realise, oh, and so actually you get changed as a result. And there's truth in that. But they would really emphasise that is ultimately all that prayer is about. Um, they would say circumstances don't change through prayer, they're fixed. This is what you call the start of the hyper-Calvinists. And there's, there's, there's scriptural warrant for some of this stuff. Psalm 109, uh, 139 verse 16 says, every, la- every day of our lives was written in God's book before one of them came to be. So you think, oh, I can see the logic here. Okay, it's all written out. There's scriptural truth to back that up. Um, we have the predictive literature. We have the book of Revelation, which tells us how it's going to end. So, well, God knows how it's going to end. We've got Revelation. Surely, you know, we've got all the prophets that prophesied about Jesus coming. And then he came and he fulfilled every promise. Well, so God clearly knows the end from the beginning. So there's truth to back up this stance. The Bible describes God in Ephesians 1.11 as working all things according to the counsel of his will. So he orchestrates everything. The Bible says that he ordains the times and places that we live. So you think, it's not just nonsense. There's definitely scriptural backing for this. At the other end of the spectrum, you have the hyper-Arminians. And uh, they really endorse what is known as an openness theology, that it's not all worked out, and that a whole lot more hangs on our prayer and our action than we care or like to think. Okay? It's actually, if we don't pray, things are, things are going to, you know, it could all go wrong. That would be more their stance. They would cite scriptures like James 4 verse 2, where he says, you do not have because you do not ask. That seems pretty straightforward. So my circumstances actually are not necessarily a result of God's preordained will, it's I've been praying. If I just prayed, I would have been in a better place. James 4.2 teaches that. Our circumstances are at times a direct reflection of the state of our prayer lives. Not necessarily, well, it's just God's will. No, you haven't been praying. Or they would point to situations where Jesus was unable to do many miracles because of the unbelief of the community he was in. And they would therefore deduce that the Lord has put things together um, so that he will not act except in response to prayer. Some people will say that God will only act in response to prayer because God makes a big deal about prayer in the scripture. Um, and as you can imagine, this kind of thinking would produce a lot of prayer, but also perhaps a fair bit of anxiety. You know, have I prayed enough? How do, when is enough enough? So what is a healthy biblical view? It's important that we nail it. What is, scripture reveals that the Lord is absolutely sovereign, that he does know the end from the beginning, that he, de- but that he also definitely works in concert with our prayers. But I would say this, is free to work without them. See, some would say, God will not work except by prayer. I think, uh, I don't think that is, I think that's, an ex- that's a caricature. They're wanting to emphasise the importance of prayer, and rightly so, but I think you've, you've stepped over a line that's not actually biblical there. There have been times in my life where, you know, my prayer life, it's not been great. I've just been, I've just been struggling. Um, and sometimes it's not really any fault of my own. Circumstances are just, you know, out of control or whatever. And, you, and, you, and sometimes it's a lack of discipline, but it's a mixture. But you just know in it, God's carrying you. I'm sure many of us that know the Lord have known that. You just know, man, it's, you know, 
what, there's this blessing coming out, and I don't know what it is. Can't put it down to anything. Someone might say, well, maybe it's because others are praying for you. I'm sure that's part of it. But I don't think God is restricted by prayerlessness. I don't think that's, I don't think you could argue that. You, I think there's scripture to, to back that up. There's no hint of dualism in the Bible. Dualism is the idea that God and Satan are evenly matched foes and it could go either way. Yeah? It's, Who's going to win? There's no sense of that scripturally. Satan is created. God is creator. Okay? Satan has to ask for permission. You read the book of Job, what happens first? Satan needs permission from the Lord before he can start doing his dirty work. Um, you find that Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. And God gave him it. God gives permission. You think, well, isn't that very nice? Actually, it's very comforting because God does not test us beyond what we can bear. So Satan may come and say, I really want to nail Mary. I want to nail her. And God looks down and says, at the moment, she's in a tender place. No. no. Can't do it. That's comforting, isn't it? It might be that God says, well, you know what? She's in a strong place and she, she, she needs a bit of sanctifying. And yeah, I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure the old devil could serve my purposes in this. Okay. The old Puritans used to describe Satan as a handmaid in God's kitchen. He unwittingly serves the purposes of God. Absolutely. You see that. You see it in Job, you see it in Peter's life, you see it. And you, you know, attack. How you respond to attack can actually bring great glory to God and great growth. So, so you know, you mustn't see it as a dualistic thing. Um, we see a God who's entirely sovereign and not dependent on prayer. However, we see a God who is moved by people touched by humility. Ahab was terrible. I mean, terrible. The things he did. Elijah prophesies destruction and he just is king, this royal king. He tears his clothes and he goes about just dejectedly because there's something of the fear of the Lord in his heart. And God looks on and God is moved. And God says, okay, we'll postpone it. Wow. You see, he's moved. God, God's heart is moved by the man's response. It's biblical. He rewards those who seek him, he's pleased by faith, and he's certainly keen to answer our prayers. And so, what I would say is this, I would describe God's sovereignty as dynamic, not static. What I mean is this, if you've got a static sovereignty, it's like, well, I'm praying, but at the end of the day, it's all done anyway. You, you know what I mean? And I think that can lead to a passivity in prayer. You think, I'm not really going to pray, because, well, it's he's, he's all done, it's all written out. I don't, I think that you've gone beyond biblical stuff there. I don't understand the mystery, don't ask me to bring it together, because God doesn't know the end from the beginning, but he's absolutely moved by prayer. He absolutely loves faith. He's absolutely touched by humility. And I, and, and I am utterly convinced that not only do I change when I come to pray, but circumstances do. Absolutely. And somehow you've got to hold together a, a theology which is God is totally sovereign, I'm going to rest in the fact that he knows what he's doing, and at the same time, I'm totally committed to the fact that prayer is huge. It's a huge thing. And there are definitely times where as individuals and as churches, we do not have because we do not ask. And we're thinking, oh, God doesn't want to bless me. Yes, he does ask. Ask. And we're not bold or audacious enough in our prayers. We say, well, if it's God's will, it'll happen. That's fatalism. That's more like Islam. That is much more of an Islamic mentality. If it, yeah, whatever it will be, will be. That is not biblical theology. We have to come to God, lay a hold of him for what he's promised, and God will act in response to that. Absolutely. I want to just unpack this a bit more. Here's how I would sum it up. God, in his sovereignty, has decreed that his usual way of working is through people's prayers and actions. Okay? So he's free to work outside of our prayer and action, but he in his sovereignty has decreed, my usual way of working is through prayer and action. 
I think that's, I think that's biblical. I think that's, that brings the, both things together. It remains a lot of mystery in there. You've noticed I haven't tied it all up because I can't. But I think that is what the Bible teaches. You may have a different tradition. You may have been brought up with a different emphasis doctrinally. I'm happy to talk this through with you um, afterwards. I'm really happy to do that. I believe, that, but I want to. I feel confident with this. Let's unfold this a bit more. In the Bible, I've come across 17 instances that refer, in the same sentence, to the Lord and the matter of whether or not He changes His mind. The various terms used are changing His mind, relenting, regretting, and being sorry. All of these English phrases are an interpretation of the same Hebrew word nakam or nachan, which means to sigh what it means when God goes ah God sighs 17 instances I have found in the Bible two of those 17 say that he doesn't natchan he doesn't sigh the other 15 refer to him sighing so either the Bible is inconsistent and the people that wrote it were not being inspired by the Holy Spirit or there's an explanation for it hallelujah there's an explanation for it (laughs) But you can understand on a surface value where some people will say, what is contradiction? Now let's look into this, shall we? Let's look at those two references. Numbers 23, verse 19, I'll read out to you. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should nachan, that he should change his mind, that he should sigh. Number one. Number two. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, nachan, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Natcha. I hope I'm pronouncing it right, I'm probably not. Any Hebrew scholars here. What do those two verses have in common? Other than the word natcha. No one's trying to be clever. What do the other two verses have in common? Anyone notice anything? Both verses refer to the fact that God is not a man. So when you or me, Natchan, why do we Natchan? We nechan because we are inconsistent. We change our mind because we are inconsistent, yes? We change our mind because we thought that was the best thing, then we realised, oh no, that's the best thing, yeah? We nechan because we thought going to the cinema was a good idea, and then you hear someone else is going out to the pub, and you think, oh, I'll go there instead. You're just demonstrating the fact that you, you didn't see the whole picture. We nechan because we say things, and then we regret saying it, and so we have to take it back, because we tend to say silly things. Well, we nechan because we do something and then we realise we've done it out of the wrong motive, so we have to take it back. Okay? We nechan because we're flawed and inconsistent. God does not nechan like that. That's what those verses are saying. Whenever God nechans, <laughs> whenever God sighs, it is not because he's inconsistent, flawed, or has impure motives. God does not sigh that way. In fact, the opposite which is the beautiful key to the issue. The the other 15 times, 12 of the 15 refer to the Lord changing his mind in order to show mercy. Three of the 15 refer to the Lord changing his mind in order to bring judgment. So, why does the Lord sigh? The Lord sighs because he's utterly consistent in his character. So, for example, let's look at some of the Um, some of these references. Judges 2 verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for Israel, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity. The Lord was moved to sighing 
by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Israel were famous for turning their back on God and duly joining the worship of the Lord with other religions, syncretism, joining it together. We'll mix it up, it'll be fine. Sound familiar? We'll mix it up, it'll be fine. Whenever they did that, God would then judge them by letting an enemy invade them and overcome them. They would then cry out and God would hear their cry and would sigh. And he would send them a judge. So why would God... See, so well, God's bringing judgment, now he's, now he's bringing a judge. Why? Because ultimately God's delight is to bring mercy. Yeah? God is compassionate. The Lord is compassionate. Hallelujah! His compassions never fail. His compassions never... God's heart is moved. When you, if you've done stupid things as a believer, and then you find yourself groaning, yeah? You've been there? I've been there. You go, oh, God is moved. God is moved. And he wants to say, come on, let's find a way through. Let's, it's God, God's isn't, right, now I'm going to punish you for years for that. If you're groaning, you're repentant, you're like, God, God's heart is, he sighs, come on, let's find, let's find a merciful way through. It's simply, his sighing speaks of his consistency. Hallelujah. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. So let's have a look at maybe one or two others. In this situation, Israel has come under judgment for a sin that King David did. And really, it's terrible. The Lord, it's a terrible situation, scenario to be in. The Lord gives David three options in terms of judgment. You can have this, this, or this. David um, chooses to let a plague hit Israel. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord sighed from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it's enough, stay your hand. So God's bringing judgment that they deserve and then it gets to the point where it gets near God's holy city he's where, where in those days his presence would dwell and he sees the angel of destruction's hand about to destroy it and he goes, ah, no. He's moved. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So God brings judgment because he's just. But at the, a certain moments his heart will be moved and he acts in mercy. Yeah? So what about the three scenarios where the Lord seemed like he was going to bring mercy and then brings judgment? We need to look at those. How do they pan out? Well, they pan out beautifully. Genesis 6, verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. The Lord sighed. And it grieved him to his heart. What happened then? The flood. You think, well, man, that's, that's a harsh thing. Yeah, but you know what? Part of God's nature and character is justice. It's justice. People, don't, people struggle with that. People really struggle with this concept that God is just. They don't mind it. And they like justice when it's other people getting nailed for their wrongdoing. When it's the paedophile, when it's the murderer, people like justice. When it's our own sin, which we don't see that bad, do we? Huh? We see the paedophile sinners. But what about when you lie? What about when you, what about when, you, know, what about when you deceive? What about, what, about, what about when you lust? I think, well, it's not harming anyone. I'll tell you what, it's hurting God's heart. Ultimately, your sin's against him. You can't have a God who's just to the paedophile, but not to you. God punishes sin. And it's part of his consistency. If he didn't, I'd be worried, wouldn't you? What would heaven be like, ruled by a God who's not just anymore? So we see this, actually, it's it's an encouraging, comforting thing. He's consistently just. Listen to Jeremiah 18, verse 9 and 10. If at any time God says, I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build up and plant it, and then if it does evil in my sight, not listen to my voice, then I will relent of the good I intended for it. I'll sigh and I'll judge it instead. 
So what's this saying? What's this saying is this. If God promises loads of good for you, and then you begin to, because you think, well, God's going to bless me, you get presumptuous, and you just start sinning and doing all kinds of wicked stuff, God says, I'm not going to be mocked. I'm going to be mocked by that. I'm going to deal with you. It's, it's comforting. It's like, oh, phew, you can't mock God. That's a good thing. But I think it's important that, that there's 12 out of 15 that are to mercy and 3 out of 15 that are for judge, judgment. I think that's an important thing mathematically. Why? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. And God always prefers to show mercy. It's always God's heart to show mercy. It really, and so, he, so, so God sighs because he's consistent with his nature and his promises. We sigh because we're inconsistent. Okay? He doesn't sigh like that. He's not a man. He doesn't sigh like that. But he does sigh and he is moved. And so when it comes to praying, can you change God's mind? Yes. You can. It's biblical. It's there. It's in there. Does that undermine his sovereignty? No, not at all. How does that work in the whole grand scheme? No idea. <laughs> That's where I stop. I can't go any further. That would be treading over holy ground. It's not revealed. It's not revealed. I'm not going to try and make it all dovetail. I can't dovetail it. That's what's revealed though. And it's important that you hold both those things together. If you can't live with tension, you can't live with biblical theology. If you insist that it must be this or it must be this, well, you're going to end up with a caricature. You must go with what's been revealed. It's very, very important. When the Lord changes his mind, it's always out of his incomparable consistency. His nature and his promises are the things which we anchor into God into in prayer and then we hold fast even when nothing's happening. Here's the final thing I want to say. Do not, whatever you do, go after God for something that he has not revealed as his will. Do not go after again and again in order to change his mind on that because you could end up in a very horrible situation. We are told that the people of Israel insisted on having a king. Insisted on it. God says, I want to be your king. Let's have a theocracy. They say, no, we want a monarchy. We want a king. And they kept going. Samuel, the prophet, said, it's not going to work. He said, no, we want a king. We want... What does it say in Hosea 13, 11? It says this. In my wrath, I gave you a king. You don't want that. In my wrath, I gave you that boyfriend. In my wrath, I gave you that girlfriend. You don't want that. You really don't. You go after the things that God has revealed he wants to do. It is my will that none should perish, but all should be saved. Right, you go after that. Yeah? It is my will that I will provide all your needs. You go after that. Yeah? You go after that. Because it's been revealed. So it's been revealed, so you go after it. Do not go after those things that you're not too sure about. So what do I do in a situation? I really would love to go to that person. You say, Lord, I really am attracted to that person. I just, they're, they're the business. I'd love to know them better. Yeah? I'd love to know them better. Right? So you say, what do you do? You say, Lord, I'm going to leave that with you. Yeah? I'm going to leave that because I trust you, know my needs before I even ask. You know what's best for me? You're wise. If it's your will, please provide. Open up doors. And then you don't try and manoeuvre and engineer and manipulate and orchestrate. You leave it with him. It's very important. Ever so important. But other things, you go after and you don't stop. And you move God with your heart. But why is that? Why has God moved? It's what, here's what it's like. It's like like attracts like. If God sees further desire, longing for his kingdom, it, it attracts him because that's him. Yeah? If I can come and fellowship with that, come on. God is moved. This is relationship with God. This is prayer. It's not just a thing you work through a list rigidly. It's heart. It's, oh, come on, God. It's desire. It's longing. There's not a better place to be than that, I'll tell you. There's not a better place to be than that. That takes time to culture. To, to nurture, to cultivate. It takes time. It 
takes a lot of time. But it's worth it. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful, beautiful thing. So what I'm saying is this. Go for broke on the things that God has revealed are his will. Give your all to those things in prayer with great confidence because ask and it shall be given. God will not hold good things, withhold good things from you. He will not. He will not. If it's being withheld, it's either an issue of perseverance or it's an issue of, it's not good for you, actually. Yeah. Primarily. This is why God is so gracious when he says, seek first his kingdom. Because that's what's really good for you. And his righteousness. And then the other things will be added to you. Yeah? Make sure that your prayer life is tipped that way. Yeah? That's why, the Lord, that's why you've got to use the Lord's Prayer. That's why. Because you nailed the things first. Before you get into, oh, how sinful I've been. No. Don't you start there, you won't move on. You start your prayers there, you will not move on. Oh, Lord, I'm terrible. Half an hour later, internet. What happened to the prayer time? You just got totally discouraged. You do not start there. Father. Ah. Yeah. No, I'm an idiot, but you love me. Ah, it's great. Yeah. That's, that's it, isn't it? Ah, thank you, Father, Father, Father. Sometimes I just do that. I just walk around, Father, Abba, Father. Just, that's what I do. I can do it ten minutes. Just loving it. That's it. Spirit cries out. Get that right. Hallowed be your name. Be glorified, Lord. Be, be esteemed in my heart. Be esteemed in my family, my wife, my kids, the church. Be esteemed. That's why I'm at. I'm, sometimes I don't get any further than that. Time out. Time's gone. Okay. No problem. Why? Because my Father knows my needs even before I ask. Yeah, I didn't get on to the fact that we've got some bills coming in, it's looking a bit tricky. Yeah? He knows. Yeah, yeah. Tilt your prayers that way. Lord's Prayer. Work through like that. It's a beautiful gift from God, that thing. Okay. So that leaves us. Where does it leave us? In a fantastic position. Okay? God has revealed his will and shown us how to pray. As we press him for those things, our perseverance, our faith, our humility, our desperation and our desire all have great effect and give great power to our prayers. God is moved by our earnestness. Let us pray. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Okay. Now, I'm happy to answer questions on that or questions on fasting. Sorry. <laughs> Seb. If the devil is the handmaid uh, in God's kitchen, hmm. why do we pray against satanic attacks when God won't test us I think that when we're praying, I think it's a good question. I'll, I'll, I'll speak it in so it helps me on the internet. If the devil is um, handmade in God's kitchen, why do we pray against satanic attacks and... When God won't test us in what we can bear. I think there's a few things. I think number one, it's been revealed that we should pray, deliver us from the evil one. So when I get to the end part of the Lord's Prayer, I'm praying, if I get there, <laughs> I'm praying, keep us from temptation. What do I do at that point? I'm praying, God, keep me and my family from things that we cannot bear. You say, well, God will do that anyway. Yeah, yes, but if I begin to, if I begin not to pray, then what I'm demonstrating is, is this like, I'll be all right, no drama. I can take it. I can develop an independent spirit which can become presumption, in which case God might need to just lay me low, to, to, just to teach me a lesson. Not, not for good, just... <laughs> yeah? Click around here, I'll... It's like, oh, yeah, sorry. We need, to, we need constantly to be helped. So, so I pray that God keep me, I pray for Davina, I pray for the kids, keep us from things that are beyond us, things that we can't... Then I get on to the, Deliver my children from the evil one. Deliver them from people that are sent by Satan. Deliver them from predators. Deliver the church. I pray for those in the church who are particularly struggling, I'm aware of. Deliver them from discouragement. I'm praying, yeah? So I'm praying that, because that's what's been revealed. And I think that is part of how God doesn't test us beyond what we can bear. It works together. It's a mystery. It's a spirit. Do you know what I mean? It's not just, well, God says that, therefore that. That doesn't always work. 
the logic. You always apply, you just you take what's revealed and you live it and you pray it out and then the whole thing, the whole picture comes together. Also, when I am being tested and stuff, I say, God, I want to come through this good. Show me how to respond to this. See, sometimes it's sit tight. Sometimes it's repent, because actually what's happened is this is a discipline issue, because God's doing this because of something I've done wrong. Other times it's pray for breakthrough. And it's like, God, just give me a sense of what this is. God will show you. God will show you. So I think that what I would say is, is that ultimately it all works for God, but what we see is the devil, and we see Jesus resisting the devil in the wilderness. We're told to resist Satan, he will flee. So what's been revealed, we still work with. Is that okay? In my answers, I might not, I might not always answer everything. You think, well, that, that's because it's mystery and I can't necessarily answer it. Is that okay? Or because I've just got blind spots. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you, want to, do you want to ask any more? Is that okay? Okay, anything else? Ollie. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Very good, yeah. Sure. Yes. Okay, I'll try and articulate that in a nutshell. It's an excellent question. If God is so involved with nations bringing up, bringing down, he's just, why is there so much injustice in the world? How does that work? I think there's a couple of things. What you've got to understand in the Old Testament, Israel really represents the church. So it's God's people. So I think there's a set pattern there for us as the church that is if we, if we walk in the spirit and walk in a, in a godly way, then God will exalt the church in a nation so that the church can serve that nation and bring God's kingdom in that nation. Okay? I think what I would also say is this, is that God puts people over nations and the authority he gives them is very real. Because you could take this right back to Adam and Eve. You say, well, you know, why, why is the world like it? Well, because Adam and Eve sinned. Because the jurisdiction that God gave them was real. He said, you subdue, you rule it. It's the real authority. It's not pretend, you know, puppets. It's, no, I've put you over this. You subdue it, you rule it. And then they disobeyed. So, so they gave away what God had given them. Yeah? And so you get, you get someone in power who abuses that power and is corrupt. It's not to say that we shouldn't pray. I pray regularly. I pray regularly for the DRC, uh, Uganda, Zimbabwe, nations that feel God's just put on my heart that has fallen apart. I pray and I believe, I declare the Lordship of Christ and I pray God to break and intervene. At the same time, I'm just aware, somehow in that, I'm working on, on another level with that, is the fact that these, these rulers, um, you know, they have a very, they rule, they have a real authority and often are in the grip of demonic power, so it's a spiritual warfare issue. I don't understand the ins and outs of it, but what I do know is, is that God's plan is to establish his rule through godly people. And that's why I believe we need to be praying that God will be raising up from the church people to rule, rule nations. Not to impose Christianity on that nation, because you can't impose Christianity, but to lead in a kingdom godly way and be a blessing to that nation. And that's why I think as churches, we need to get the hang of this and realise we, we are supposed to be... For some of you, you are called to places of prominence. You're called to be mayors, you're called to be councillors, you're called to be MPs, you're called, you, need to just, you need to pursue God in there. Being actively involved in your church, don't become a lone ranger and maverick, you're totally rooted into the community of your church, but you are fulfilling that calling in God, and a church should be behind you, supporting you and praying for you in it. So I think that, that was how I'd answer that in a very long way. Is that okay? Anything else? Okay, we'll stick for one for now, if you choose your favourite.
of bad people are in charge of, like, of the governments uh, all around the world. So uh, why, why is that? Mm. I think I would say that, I think that's perhaps a slight caricature. I think that there, there's definitely a scale, isn't there? I think, you know, goodies and baddies is perhaps a slightly black and white way of looking at it. I mean, the Bible, the Bible you know, I guess different nations are ruled differently and to different qualities of justice and injustice. I think it's very important that the church prays for its leaders, the leaders of the nation. I'm not sure we always take our responsibility to pray for the Prime Minister. We prefer to make jokes about him. We need to watch that, you see, because that's what we do as a nation. The church should be a different culture. We're honouring and praying for the man. Would you like his job? <laughs> it's easy to criticise, isn't it? It's easy to sit on the sidelines and say, oh, well, what would you do in a worldwide global recession? I mean, come on, what, you know, what would you do? Even Bush, you know, you might not like Bush and all that. What would you do? You're leading, you're leading the nation and suddenly you get the message that two jets have just flown into the Twin Towers. How do you respond? I'm not saying you did the right thing, but I mean, mate, would you like to have made that call? These guys need prayer. Who's going to be praying for them? The church. So I just think really it comes back to us. Let's take responsibility. Let's pray for our leaders. That's the best I can give you on that one. Thank you. Gemma. Yes. 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 Limited atonement. It's a slight tangent, but uh, <laughs> it's all, it is relevant. It is relevant. If you look at Calvinism, I mean, the five points of Calvinism, one of them, the L, tulip. Uh, one of them, L, is limited atonement, which basically teaches that Jesus Christ did not die for everyone on the cross, but only died for the elect. Um, I think that I would say, I'm doing a bit of reading on it, because I think you, know, you need to be able to answer these things well. I struggle to see it as a biblical doctrine. I think it's more of a logical conclusion of Calvinism, more than something the Bible explicitly teaches. Um, that, that, that's where I'm at at the moment. I don't, I don't, yeah, so give me some time on that. But <laughs> great question. Okay, listen, we've got five more minutes fasting. I'm oh, sorry, is this fasting? Of course you can. Anyone as pretty as you? How could I say no? Watch and learn, guys. Watch and learn. That was my wife, by the way, on the internet. Very good. I couldn't really uh, yeah. answer it, mm. but I know that Yeah. Very good, that's great. Hung, a hunger strike is when you are under the rule, is when you are protesting about the rule that is over you and, you, and, and really you're coming with a different agenda to the rule that is over you and saying, until you change your stance, I'm not going to eat. Okay? Yeah? You're, it's a protest against something that's going on, the way things are being governed. Fasting is, is a longing and a desire for the government of God. Right? So you're not saying, God, you're not doing this enough, I'm going to fast and maybe this will sort things out. No. Fasting is when, is, when is when you say, Lord, I just want to catch your heart on this. I just need to get your heart on this. And I need to just be able to take some time to put aside distractions and really just express that I'm dependent on you and that I'm desperate for you. And it's not trying to impress or twist your arm. I just want to find out how I can really work with you on this and see what you're doing in it. So you're working with God, yeah, rather than protesting against God. Does that make sense? And it's not a hunger strike. Ultimately, is manipulative, isn't it? Ultimately, you're saying until you do that, I won't do that. Never start a fast without a finished date. 
I think that's wisdom. Otherwise, you can go weird. You can go weird. You can. Because what can happen is, after a few days, after a few days of fasting, you can enter, you enter a different realm. I don't know what it is. I don't know how much of it is spiritual, how much of it is psychological, but it's just different. And it can be kind of nice. I'm just speaking from experience here. I was thinking, what the heck is this guy talking about? I, I, I don't know what it is. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's psychological. It's just it's, it's chemi- chemical change. It's just this. But sometimes it feels kind of spiritual. I don't know. But it's different. That can get kind of addictive in a weird way. You don't want to go down that road. You can get ascetic and strange and start thinking somehow you're more spiritual than the others. People that are into fasting have to watch that kind of stuff. Um, because you can then get into abstinence and, and point scoring. And oh, I did a four day, oh, I did a five. You really don't want to go down that road. It's between you and the Lord. And it doesn't earn you any more love or any more acceptance with Him at all. It's simply a way of saying, I'm going to put aside all distractions, which is quite humorous in some ways because the first few times you fast, you probably feel more distracted because <laughs> you think about food the whole time. If you come through that, which sometimes takes, some can take a, a while in terms of just pressing on with the discipline of fasting, you find that actually you begin to really appreciate the fact that you can just, just seek God. You know? it's, a, it's a precious thing. So, yeah. so, so, so I always decide I'm going to start then and finish then. Because if you say, oh, I'm going to start, and I'm going to do three days, and that's it. You get to three days, and you're on, you're on cloud nine, and you're hanging out with the angels. The temptation is to just keep going. Yeah? No. Your access to God in the spiritual realm is not because you're fasting, it's because of the blood of Christ. Yeah? It's not that, it's that. Okay, next question. Dave. Yes. Yeah, do you have to pray more when you fast? I think if you can, it's helpful. If you can, it's helpful, yeah. You don't have to. Sometimes you just, the constraint, you just can't, you know. You just can't. Your job's highly demand or you're, you're on a deadline. You just can't. But I still think it doesn't, sometimes, when I've been in that situation, I've said, Lord, I'm not praying more, but can, can this fast be the prayer, please? Yeah? Can, can, can the fact that I've just be, can you just see that and that's, you see what I'm saying? You just say that. But I think if you can, it's great to use your meal times and it's great to just put those times aside. That's what, to me, that makes sense. You'd normally be eating to pray. With family, young family, sometimes it's harder. But if you can, it's helpful. Um, yeah. One more question. Simon. Okay, very, very good point. Those two hours are just about corporate prayer. To me, you can walk around the school with a sandwich in your hand. Yeah? You might have decided, I'm fasting Wednesday. No problem. On Tuesday, come walk around the school with your chips. It's no big deal. Okay? Those two hour slots, everyone else will jump on you and hit you, but no. Those two hour slots, there's, that's about, that's when we're going to pray together. Yeah? If we're available, we're going to pray together. Um, my suggestion, if, you, if you're going to fast a day, my suggestion is simply this, is you wake up in the morning and you don't eat until you get up the next morning. If you're going to do a day, do that. If you're going to do a meal, you're going to do lunch, and lunch is normally one till two, I'd say then, then, then don't eat between one and two, and then save yourself, don't eat anymore until dinner time. 
because you've decided to fast that meal. To then have a meal at two, but I normally, I normally have lunch in one or two, so I thought, it's too silly. You just, yeah. <laughs> You're just changing your meal times. <laughs> yeah, so, but, but I, I, so I think you've got to decide before God, what am I in faith for? What can I do? If you've never fasted before, do a meal. Yeah, just do a meal. Or do pudding. Don't eat puddings if you've never done it before. But some of you... <laughs> I would say some of... But I would say whatever you do, here's the thing, whatever you do, go on the stretch. Don't just be... Oh, no, make it an act of faith, an act of... God, you know, this, is, this matters to me. It matters to me that we see people saved. It matters to me that I'm part of a church community that's called a corporate fast, so I'm in. Yeah? And I think that's really important for us because we tend to be so individualistic the way we think. No, no, we're doing this together, guys. As a church, we want to see breakthrough and salvation. Amen? So we're going to fast and pray. It's really simple. I'm part of this, right? I'm in. Hallelujah? God is with us. Should we sing and love Him some more? Yeah? And warm up while we do so. Yeah? We'll take the bread and